people, by Bible students, because they um, are uniquely focused on telling the good news of the coming of Jesus Christ into this world, of his life, of his teaching, of his ministry. And uh, so, again, they, they've received that label, the Gospels. Well, in a similar way, you know that our first five books of the Old Testament have been given a label. And those first five books are written by Moses, and God used Moses, among other things, to really uh, be the founding leader of the nation of Israel and to give them the record of the extensive laws that God had to govern that nation, a nation uniquely related to him. So like the first four New Testament books have come to be known as the Gospels, the first five books of the Old Testament have come to be known as the Law. Sometimes the entire Old Testament is generally referred to as the Law. Sometimes it's the Law and the Prophets. Sometimes the Law and the Psalms or the Writings and the Prophets. But that label has referred to those first five books in particular. And I'm emphasizing that again this morning because last week we took note of the fact that Jesus, right in the middle of this sermon that we're studying, uh, addressed the question that he knew that was in some people's mind in his audience about what was the relationship between his teaching and that of the Old Testament in general but in particular, what's the relationship of Jesus' teaching to the Old Testament law? And we gave detailed attention last week to verses 17 through 19. This morning, I just want to reread that section, and I trust that maybe your notes and just your familiarity with it from last week will start to come back up. But the argument is pretty clear right from uh, just a simple reading. Notice in verse 17... Think not, this is Jesus speaking, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so. He shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so you can see again, these words remind us that Jesus had no intention of doing away with the significance of the Old Testament. He actually affirmed it. He affirmed its significance. He affirmed its authority. He affirmed its relationship to himself. And with that, again, then kind of that groundwork covered, reestablished, the next major section of this sermon in verse 20 takes that emphasis a step further. And you can see the sections are related. The first word of verse 20 is what? It is the word for, and it's just connecting us to what he's just affirmed regarding his relationship to the Old Testament. And he says now in verse 20, For I say unto you, let me just take this even a step further, all right? I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, 
ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now that's opened up a whole new can of worms, so to speak, in the minds of the audience and maybe of us today. The mention of the scribes and Pharisees would be another connection for Jesus' audience to what we've just read and that whole discussion of the law. Because the scribes and Pharisees were regarded by the common people as the scholars. I mean, they are, they are the guardians of that law. Okay? We're aware that Jesus went on to have some major confrontations with the scribes and Pharisees. He exposed them as hypocrites. And we're going to see a little more of that even today in this message. But to this point... That body of men were really highly respected by the common people. And some of them were sincere in their attempts to to live in keeping with the righteous standards that were laid down in the law. You can remember Saul of Tarsus, who became who? He became the Apostle Paul. But Saul of Tarsus was a sincere and earnest Pharisee. He later came to see that in many things he had been entirely wrong in his Phariseeism. But he said, and the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Scripture, allows him to testify that even when he was practicing Phariseeism wrong, he was doing it in all good conscience toward God and men. In Philippians chapter 3, he actually said that pertaining to the righteousness which is in the law, he was what? He was blameless. You can think about the prayer of another Pharisee. Jesus drew attention to it in Luke chapter 18. In that prayer, he gave testimony to the fact that he was not an extortioner in business. He was not unjust in his treatment of other people. And he even said that he was not an adulterer like so many other men of his day were. In addition to that, he said that he fasted two days a week. And he was faithful to give tithes of everything he owned. Later, Jesus talks about Pharisees who tithe right down to the herbs that came out of their gardens. They tithed on everything. All right, I'm just, again, trying to paint a little backdrop that these men were the guardians of the Scripture. They displayed significant religious zeal. But now Jesus is saying, if you're going to go to heaven, you're going to have to have a righteousness that surpasses the religious efforts of a man like Saul of Tarsus. Or you're not even a true citizen of my kingdom. Now, brethren, that had to floor many of those people that were earnestly listening to Jesus that day. They wanted to know how to be right with God. And he's telling them, you've got got to be more religious than Saul of Tarsus. You've got to be more religious than the scribes and Pharisees. That's how they're hearing it. I mean, the efforts... And the apparent devotion of of Saul isn't enough to get him into heaven. In our day, it might be like saying to some people, the efforts of Mother Teresa weren't enough to assure her heaven. All right, If, 
if the efforts of men and women like that don't get them into heaven. As those common people were standing there that day, they must have thought, then what is there any hope for me? I mean, what, what can I do? As they, as they thought about the law and they thought about its righteousness, what kind of righteousness could surpass the Pharisees? What did all that have to do with what Jesus just said about his affirmation of the law? And beginning in the next verse and continuing right down through the end of the chapter, Jesus goes on to help answer some of those questions. What did he mean by a righteousness exceeding that which the Pharisees had found in the law? And he illustrates it. And you can see him use a formula-type expression. Verse 21, look at it there. It begins with these words, Ye have heard that it was said. All right? But now look at verse 22. He begins by saying, but I say unto you, right? Look at verse 27 so that you can see what I'm talking about. Ye have heard that it was said. Look at verse 28. But I say unto you. And marking these things in your Bible can help certain things stand out. Look at verse 31. It hath been said. Verse 32. But I say unto you. All right, look at verse 33. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said. Verse 34, but I say unto you. You can see it again in verse 38. Ye have heard that it hath been said. Now verse 39, but I say unto you. And for the last time here in this chapter, look at verse 43. Ye have heard that it hath been said. Now verse 44, but I say unto you, all right, do you have questions about what it would mean to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees? To have a righteousness that would mark you as a true citizen of my kingdom, all right, then listen to what I have to say about the real intent of the law and the significance of the law, and a righteousness that is exceeding how the scribes and Pharisees have handled the law. And Lord willing, over the next several weeks, we're going to explore each of these illustrations of Christ filling up the significance. But one of the more obvious observations that we will make again and again is that in every case, Jesus intensified and actually internalized the intent of the law. All right, so look, for instance, at verse 21. Okay, the emphasis of the law was what in verse 21? The emphasis was don't do what? Don't, don't kill, which is to say, and as we explore it, the sixth commandment of the law, when we come back there, we'll see that is to say, don't commit murder. All right? So any form of murder is a violation of the righteous demands of the law. But when Jesus said, 
I say unto you, he's going to actually underscore the fact that you are really mistaken if you think that actually committing murder is the only thing the sixth commandment was intended to address. All right? In verse 22, he says we could actually violate the intent by what? I mean, the first thing is by, by anger in the heart. And we could violate the sixth commandment by the way we speak to others and about others. So you've heard it said, don't murder. And certainly murder is a violation of the righteousness of the law. But you could be guilty of violating the sixth commandment by what's going on in your heart and by the words that you utter. Look at verse 27. What is the emphasis of the seventh commandment? As verse 27 gives it. It is don't do what? Don't, okay, don't commit adultery. So breaking the marriage covenant by having relations with someone who's not your spouse is definitely a violation of the righteous demands of the law. But again, you're really mistaken if you think that's the only way the seventh commandment is violated. Look at verse 28. He says, looking with lustful intent. I say unto you that whoever looks on a woman to lust. All right, that's a violation of the righteous demands of the law. And you could trigger that trap in verse 29 by what you look at, so deal with it at the eye level, but you could also trigger that trap in verse 30 by what your hand touches. And actually, I believe we'll see still in this arena, in verse 31, you could try to get around being adulterer by getting a divorce, but in verse 32... Divorce and remarriage is itself still a form of what? It is still a form of adultery. So don't think that just breaking the marriage covenant with and having relations with somebody that is not your spouse is the only thing that the seventh commandment is addressing. Now, brethren, I, I think that, really, you can see the picture already. You and I could be charged with guilt by the same law that condemns the murderer and adulterer, even if we've never committed the external act. We could still be charged with guilty by the very same laws. And beginning in verse 33, the ninth commandment, does forbid outright contradictions of truth in a court of law. Okay? Thou shalt not forswear thyself, right? But shalt perform thine oaths unto the Lord. But what he goes on to say is all of our creative evasions and exaggerations and misrepresentations of the true picture even those that we seemingly have kind of a righteous cover for, he's going to explore all that, 
Don't we get creative in the way we cover our lives and actually put a righteous slant on our dishonesty? All of that is condemned by the ninth commandment. And with verse 38, he moves the discussion of righteousness demanded to how we respond when others have done us wrong, when, when injustice has been committed against us. And, and even the bare statement of verse 38, you've heard that it had been said, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. Even that, do you know, cuts right across our natural tendency. Instead of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you know what our, you know what our natural response is? Let's talk about little kids so that we don't look as bad, all right? What happens when there are elementary kids waiting in line at a drinking fountain and somebody just happens to bump them? Okay, it's not eye for eye at that point. Somebody bumped me, so I am completely justified in hauling off and taking a swing that would knock all their teeth out if I could. He started it, after all. He was first. So since he was first, I have the right to escalate the response. Sound familiar? And actually, the bare statement of the law condemns that. But what the Lord goes on to say is <clears throat> he really goes on to forbid all enacting of personal vengeance and all enacting of personal retaliation. And instead, what I should look for is I should look for a way to be a blessing. And if that isn't difficult enough, look at verse 44. But I say unto you, love your who? Bless them that curse you. So do good to them that hate you. Find ways to speak honorably about them and find ways to actually do real acts of kindness to people that hate you and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. So the righteousness jesus was pointing to is something that went well beyond the external superficial law keeping that the pharisees were doing and if you're if you're looking for a description of the righteousness of the scribes and pharisees right because he said accept your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and pharisees you will not enter the kingdom of heaven if you're saying well what kind of righteousness is that well this is the first thing you could note you could just note that was an external superficial ceremonial righteousness it was it was not concerned with purity of heart below the surface and you know that when Jesus started getting more direct with the Pharisees, at this point, again, he's just kind of cited that, and, and he's going to go on to, to teach, as we've just seen, something that's internal and intensified. But when he was more direct with them, he, he actually said that to them. He said things like, you guys are like people who just clean the outside of the cup and you just clean the outside of the plate, but there's a bunch of junk on the inside that you've never even touched. 
in our day, again, it's like, it's like the kid whose mom is coming to check the room. And when mom gets in there, the bed is made. And I mean, you can see the floor. But behind the closet door is a near avalanche of clothes that are just ready to pour out if the door's open. And, and this is what Jesus is communicating about that kind of righteousness. I mean, you've got it on the external and you've got it on the superficial and you're all, you're, you know, ceremonial. But just open up the door and there's an avalanche of junk on the inside. So when we hear Jesus say this, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he actually isn't saying you've got to do more than the Pharisees. That's not what he's saying. What he's going after is a righteousness that is of a totally different nature. Okay? He's going after a righteousness where the actions on the surface are coming out of the purity and the integrity and the real love of the, uh, uh, for God and others from the inner man. They're coming out of the heart. And, and right alongside of that emphasis, that it's not just the nature of the righteousness that was at issue, there's also the matter of the audience, or even, if I'll say it this way, of the judge that you're attempting to live righteously for. All right? Look over at chapter 6. Notice chapter 6 in verse 1. He says, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men. I'm just going to pause here to say that this matter of giving alms was a public act of righteousness. All right? So he's still talking about that. He's talking about the concept of righteousness. Don't do your righteousness for who? Don't do your righteousness for men to be what? To be seen of men. Look at verse 5. And when thou prayest, this would be another expression of righteousness. When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of streets, that they may be seen of who? Of men. Look at verse number 16. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto who? Unto men to fast. Now, I know we're familiar with those expressions, but brethren, when, when Jesus summarized some of this in another place in Luke 16, listen to what he said. He said to those men, you are the kind that justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows the hearts. Now just think of the word that he used. Jesus said, you justify yourselves in the sight of men. That's interesting because that is intricately related to the concept of what? Of righteousness. Okay? To justify is to declare and regard someone as righteous. Now listen again to what Jesus is saying. By you doing your prayers to be seen of men. 
by you fasting to be seen of men, by you giving to be seen of men, by you going through all these external things to be seen of men, you guys are the kind that are justifying. You're declaring each other righteous. But God knows your heart. That's what he followed up saying. The Pharisees were masters of what we would call today virtue signaling. Have you heard that expression? Okay. They were the masters of virtue signaling. If you don't know exactly what virtue signaling is, um, I did not have to look hard. I was, I was honestly amazed. I, actually, I just put it in the internet. You know, I can't remember. It's dictionary.com or whatever. I just, I just hit virtue signaling defined. And I think it was like the third one. I wasn't looking hard. It was, this was seconds. Here's the definition. Making a conspicuously public statement on a social or political issue in order to garner praise or acknowledgement of one's righteousness. Okay? That's their word. It's not mine. A, a conspicuously public statement, they actually had something about typically on social media, right? A conspicuously public statement on social or political issue in order to garner praise or acknowledgement of one's righteousness. What is virtue signaling? Virtue signaling is doing something conspicuous so that whatever group it is that I want to be seen as righteous in will actually declare me righteous because of the strong statement I just made. Right now, now, brethren, our society is full of godless, conservative, political warriors. Conservative politicians that are campaigning for conservative politics, but they're godless. I'm not saying all their positions are wrong, but I am saying some of our conservative political warriors are godless. And on the other end, in the whole arena of social justice warriors, some of the leading social justice warriors are just blatantly godless. I mean, they are conspicuous in pursuit of what some view as a righteous cause while their personal lives are in flagrant disobedience to the word of God in nearly every arena. But, brethren, I'm not preaching to the obviously godless of our culture this morning. Okay? There are professing, Bible-believing gospel-preaching Christians that can have our own issues, okay, with virtue signaling in large and small scales. Brethren, you know that we spent a number of messages exploring what the Bible has to say about abortion. All right, it is murder. And it is an especially barbaric form of murder of the most vulnerable of our society. That is why people, even with no Christian faith at all and no real fear of God, 
they changed their views on abortion by watching a single video of an abortion taking place. It's horrendous. I think we should vote for candidates and laws that protect life in the womb. I think there's a place for supporting organizations that offer counseling and, and support uh, uh, and, and adoption agencies and on and on. But I will tell you that the one time I held up a picket sign and protested on the sidewalk in front of an abortion clinic, I ended up with a really unsatisfying feeling overall. Because I was shoulder to shoulder with people on that picket line in the protests with people that not only did not share my faith in the gospel, but they were actually contrary. They, they were ministers of a gospel, so-called, that is contrary to the message that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I thought, what am I doing? I've joined hands in a very conspicuous public arena with people that if they had their way would save that baby's life to damn them to hell with a false gospel. You can watch people that claim to believe the gospel is the difference between eternal life in heaven with God and eternal death and hell separated from God, and you can watch them spend an overwhelming majority of investment of their time and their energy and their money in social well-being causes without doing anything that actually directly results in witnessing to the person and work of Jesus Christ as their rightful Lord and Savior. And we can go away with signaling, look at how righteous I am in this campaign without telling anybody, you need to be born again. You need to trust Jesus alone. This is life and death, eternal life and death. And, and you can turn this thing of virtue signaling and pleasing men in almost any direction. What will make me accept it? What would even maybe make me promoted with, with such and such a church um, or, or Christian organization? What will make them view me as righteous? I mean, if I'm good with them, I must be okay, right? There are people that, that come to churches and they want to be involved in the whole church structure. And at some point, that, I mean, I literally have had them in the past think I haven't had it here. But I've had some say it to me right out loud. Basically, tell us what the rules are. And they even wanted a list, really wanted a list of here's the requirements for service so that I can sign. Let me know what the rules are. I could come into a church and I could find out that church has a lot. They, they put a lot of emphasis on Bible quizzing. So you know what I'm going to do to make sure I'm accepted? I'm going to be a Bible quizzer. Or that organization Here's what you do to really be in in that organization. And brethren, I'm, I'm not knocking any form of Christian discipline and, 
many of those things will be means of grace. I'm not talking traditions even that help us down certain paths. But what I am talking about is just tell me the rules so that I can keep the rules. Let me learn how I can be accepted. And in some cases, I want to say to some of you young people and you children, some of you are just looking for what can I do that's enough so that mom and dad and maybe siblings think I'm okay. And I do enough to just kind of signal that I'm with you. I'm one of you. But you know there's an awful void in your inner man below the surface of a pursuit of a relationship with God on the heart level that is your own. Okay, this this is what the Lord is talking about when he's talking about you're going to have to go beyond the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. The the intent of the law was more than just a series of external markers, right, that make other people recognize you as righteous. It's, It's about probing and exposing the needs of the inner man. And one impact this ought to have on every one of us is the realization That the righteousness I have to have and I need with God is a righteousness I don't have on my own. I may have never committed the act of murder. But I've had some issues with people where what I've thought of them in my heart and what I've said to them and what I've said about them was unrighteous. And I may have never given false testimony in a court of law, but I have repeatedly lied. And sometimes I've given clever-sounding piety to cover my lies. And I'm liable for so much unrighteousness, and I am in so deep trouble with God because of the sin of my heart. I'm going to have to have a righteousness that is given to me. And that's, that's the good news of the gospel, that there is a perfect, complete righteousness that's available. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, you don't need to turn, but that passage declares that God made Jesus to be sin, though he had no sin. And what that's declaring is that when Jesus went to the cross, he was the substitute sin bearer. He was literally the sacrificial lamb. And God made his sinless son to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The the righteousness I need is the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself applied to my account with God. And that's the place where Saul of Tarsus came. He said that he one time thought his religious heritage and his religious accomplishments and all that law-keeping was great gain, but he said he came to the place that he realized that put him in deficit to try to earn his standing with God. And the only thing that was gain was the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he said, I wanted to be found not in my own righteousness, which is of the law, but in the righteousness which is by faith of Jesus Christ, because that's the only kind that means anything in the sight of God. But that isn't the only application the Lord wanted us to make of this theme. I do need a righteousness in terms of my standing that is outside of me, given to me by faith in Jesus Christ. 
But the Lord had more in mind with this. He wanted people that knew their righteous standing with God was dependent on their faith in Christ. He wanted them to be earnest about living out that standing. I mean, you can just look back at chapter 5 and verse 6. I know we're backtracking where where we were in the Beatitudes. But in chapter 5 and verse 6, what does he say? He said, blessed are they which do what? Okay, it's not that late, but it is 12.07 or 12.08. And some of you maybe didn't have breakfast, and some of you are getting hungry. Okay, and maybe some of you thirsty. But just think what it would be for some of you if we went a few more hours. How hungry would you get? How earnest would you be? Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after what? After righteousness. I know that on my own, I'm so unrighteous. I have to have the righteousness of Jesus applied to my account in terms of my standing with God. But this is talking about this as well, that what I long for is for him to continue and extend that saving work in my life. So that by his grace and fellowship with him, I'm transformed into more and more righteousness from the mind and the heart out. I'm not going to be content with just having the transaction done. I mean, I took care of that heaven and hell stuff a long time ago. I got nothing to worry about. While below the surface of my life and outside of my public religious exercises, I'm just a filthy mess. That's not a mark of a citizen of Christ's kingdom. A mark of a true citizen is that I'm, I'm looking to him for help to deal with my passions and to deal with my mouth and to do right in my interpersonal conflicts and to do right in my thought life and act in integrity as the true righteousness of Christ himself is being formed in me. That's what I'm hungering and thirsting after. I want to be right with God in my position, but I want to be right with God by His Spirit transforming me to be like His righteous Son, Jesus Christ. Now, true citizens of Christ's kingdom never arrive at sinlessness, this side of heaven. So they stay all of their lives trusting in the righteousness of Christ given to them by faith. But those same true citizens of Christ's kingdom acknowledge what the standard really is and they yield in their spirit and they seek the grace of God to be transformed in their inner man and they earnestly seek to obey. Now that's something that exceeds the pure justifying external surface level keeping of the scribes and Pharisees. That's what the law was really intended to and Jesus is going to fill out its significance for us in this teaching. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?